And there was this quote in there that I is now like my quote of life. And it's from uh, Sir Alfred Tennyson. It is, I am a part of all that I have met. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're in Oklahoma City for part two of our interview with three city councilors for an in-depth conversation about the theme of this year's Zero Mental Health Symposium, which is healing from historical trauma. Our jumping off point for the conversation is the HBO series Watchmen, which prominently features the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. I would say that this episode has mild spoilers for Watchmen, so you have been warned. Now to introduce our guest, James Cooper of War II formerly served as an Oklahoma City public schools teacher and is a published writer, an avid middle school college preparation teacher. James also works as an adjunct film studies professor at Oklahoma City University, where he serves on OCU's Arts and Sciences Advisory Board. Next is Joe Beth Hammond, who serves Oklahoma City's Ward 6. Many of you probably know Joe Beth, or JB as we call her, as the amazing education coordinator for Mental Health Association Oklahoma. She plays a pivotal role in organizing our annual Zero Mental Health Symposium coming up October 1st and 2nd, 2020 here in Tulsa. You can learn more about the symposium at zerosymposium.org. And finally, Nikki Nice serves Ward 7. She's the 10th woman and the second woman of color to serve on the council since the city's incorporation in 1890. She's a well-known television and radio personality with nearly 15 years of on-air experience in the Oklahoma City market. Okay, let's get started. The mental health download starts now. What was fascinating is before we started this podcast, as you guys know, you were talking about Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And how much you love the show. Joe Beth just finished the graphic novel. Are we going to have a Watchmen discussion yes. right now? <laughs> <laughs> Open up a can of work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can I first say Regina King? Uh, give her all the awards. Bad. She's a badass. <laughs> <laughs> she is awesome. So I'm going to get Joe Beth to kind of give, because uh, there's, I haven't seen it. I don't have HBO. Oh, I would love no, to see it. I've read the graphic that. novel. Okay. Uh, but we, we need to find you a password. Yeah. 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 We need to yeah. find yeah. him a password. Yeah. Yeah. For just pennies a day, everybody. But Joe Beth, if you will kind of uh, give us some context about the relationship between uh, Watchmen and that it is set during the race massacre yeah. and how that relates to the symposium. The and then I want to talk and then in broader s- scope, uh, I want you guys to talk about um, your your thoughts on Watchmen and understanding the race massacre and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So, Joe Beth, if you can sense. Oh, boy. It. Well, yeah. So I just got done with the graphic novel. So I have a lot swimming through my head. And so the show sort of follows up 30 years after the book I think ended about somewhere about there and um and but the show opens up with um a depiction of the race massacre in Tulsa in 1921 and um and then sort of almost abruptly like comes to current day um and we meet this character Angela who um we is living in Tulsa we suspect she has some connection maybe through familial connection to the event and we find out she's a police officer and she's in this sort of world of like masked vigilantes, but is also a police officer, which is like a whole thing I'm 
processing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but what I found so fascinating about it as I was watching it was there's so many threads throughout the show. I think one episode in particular that really touches on Angela's like parent, like legacy and her, her family history. And, but even in other episodes, different characters touching on trauma and the trauma they've experienced sort of being an, uh, a launching point almost for the the decisions they're making, um, whether they're con- like sort of conscious or unconsciously outpourings of that trauma. Um, like even this one character who was in New York for this horrible event where 3 million people died. And, and now he essentially lives in a bunker and um, sort of the intersections there of like our weather events in Oklahoma and um, people experiencing that <clears throat> weather anxiety and um, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, but but specifically around the historical trauma piece about kind of the the history of America and segregation and the trauma in particular communities, particularly the Afri- African American community, the descendants of people who were enslaved and then experienced advances both economically and through community development, and then sort of the backlash from the white community on those communities, and and kind of what what kind of resilience communities have found despite many, many obstacles and horrible odds. Um, and then the, I think it's a fascinating thing to watch in the show because they have had true reparations, financial reparations for the Greenwood massacre, um, and seeing the, the prosperity of the community when, when they're given that opportunity is another thing I think is an interesting thing to sort of imagine what sure. what if if we could give true reparations to the communities that have experienced whether it's through really direct violence like something like the Tulsa massacre or through urban renewal and the taking of land and communities um and displacement of residents and neighborhoods like what you know what communities could really thrive in it um and so they really focus in the show in the one, we just found out there's not going to be a second season. Um, there's not? There's, no, there's not. Not. They they just, yeah, he just is like, back. I don't want to do it. And it's like, okay. At least no I'm one else can. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but they really focus on that aspect. But I think it does sort of have threads of even, you know, I learned more from reading the graphic novel about this one character, Lori Blake, and her own mm-hmm. family history and the trauma that came out of that and sort of what her response to that is. And in the ways in which she uh, decisions she makes and the yeah, I mean, it's just it was a it was fascinating to then go read the novel and, and go back and start to watch it to see those threads for other characters, even if it wasn't that the trauma they experienced wasn't about um, the color of their skin or, you know, the the community or an identity marker they had. It was personal family trauma that was informing. I think there's just an, it's a really fascinating study, I think, yeah. in the and I think they did it really well, which I mean. Sometimes, like, and I know we have lots of podcast episodes talking about mental health depictions in the media and how often they're really stigmatizing. And um, and I feel like they just did like an like they completely, you know, they misstepped or they they stepped around all of the miss the potential missteps they could have had, which um, doesn't feel like it happens very often. So, yeah, that was a wonderful summary. Um, before I'm I get thinking about it, before a lot. I get to the uh, before I let Nikki and James share their thoughts, I want to ask. Um, so I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. My history teacher did not teach me about the Tulsa race massacre. Um, I didn't learn about it until I moved to Tulsa um, after college. I didn't learn about it in college. Hmm. Um, I went to OSU. Didn't learn about that. It was only I live literally a few miles from Greenwood. You know, it's. 
part of my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And um, I only learned about it in the last 15 years mm -hmm. that I've lived in Tulsa. So, and I know that Joe Beth, you're from the Pacific Northwest. And so did you, had you ever heard of the no, Tulsa race? No, I had not. I, I learned about it in college specifically in a race and ethnicity class. And I think if I had not taken that class, I would, there's no other professor who was talking about it. Right. So. Um, and then I want to talk to you guys. So you said you're from Midwest City mm -hmm. and you're from Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. Northeast Oklahoma City. And so I want to, uh, Nikki, we'll start with you. Uh, what Growing up, how much was the Tulsa Race Massacre taught to you, talked about? I mean, what do you, I'm, I'm just curious because I've been really surprised that people that lived in Tulsa their entire lives had never heard of it. Well, I feel like I've. I've just always been a black history person um, and growing up in Millwood public schools. That's something we we were taught our black mm -hmm. history. Um, I don't think I learned that part of it until I probably got in high school. And I want to say I really believe my teacher, Miss Davis, Nancy Davis, Jr., um, taught us mm -hmm. a lot of that unsung part of our history that we didn't know local history mm -hmm. and I took it for granted then mm -hmm. although I listened but now it resonates and makes so much sense mm -hmm. um, and I, I regret not paying more attention to her because she was just a, one of those hard teachers that didn't play and you don't like those teachers <laughs> much in high school but she's one of the best teachers I've ever had mm -hmm. Um, and I can publicly say that. And I've told her that, too. <laughs> but I think I've, I feel like I've been able in my latter years to learn more about it. And I know uh, researching history and even at Langston University, understanding more about it and doing more research to me beyond that to understand the climate of mm. Oklahoma right. and the mm. history of Oklahoma's black history, sure. because um, in the 1860s, in Oklahoma, we had already at least four established black towns. Mm -hmm. By the 1890s, and at, this was all before statehood, mm -hmm. in the 1890s up until the, the time in the 1920, 21 era, we had over 50 black towns established. Mm -hmm. So when you look at what that looks like and what that was looking like, in the time of of uh, the lack of presence or ownership for African Americans in Oklahoma, we had it. Mm -hmm. We had that black ownership, so it wasn't uncommon for us. Yeah. But when you also uh, take into account um, just the importance of this area, Greenwood, and how it brought to the forefront visitors by the mm. name of Booker T. Washington, you know, how it brought visitors to write these stories yeah. and people to say, we need to go see what's going mm. on there. Yeah. Uh, and these are black folks that uh, had heavy influence across this nation mm. to say what's happening there. We want to mimic that. Yes. We want that around mm. everywhere. Um, and to understand even Listening to Mr. Hannibal Johnson, he spoke mm -hmm. at Oklahoma Christian um, a few months back and just listening to him talk about that Tulsa history mm -hmm. portion of it, because right. that's the part I didn't know who the key players were 
in because that's mm-hmm. as a Tulsa native, obviously a lot of us know that. Like we know the Claire Loopers mm-hmm. and the Nancy Davis and those people sure. in our era. So to hear him speak about the important players, the doctors, the the gentleman that owned a, a Model T Ford, who was he, he already had a, a car service and he had a, um, his own planes and you know all of those things mm-hmm. that you had at that time. It's like my goodness, yeah. they really were so much ahead of their time. Right. Uh, and then when you see that interacted and portrayed in that first episode of The Watchmen. Yeah. I mean, your heart, mm-hmm. it it's enlightened seeing how they depicted it sure. before it started, yeah. you know, when it was good. Yeah. But then afterwards, you saw just the tragedy of how it tore apart the families. Mm-hmm. And literally, literally, when you read about how, you know, they had to stay in tents and different things like that. Yeah. And... The churches that had to be rebuilt and one still standing to be rebuilt from that. And to me, just that influence of Bass Reeves Mm, in in the story that we do not talk about his influence. He was a bad man. I mean, and I mean bad as a good. (laughs) He was a very good, honorable man. And when I say bad, that's what I mean. He was, he was a, you know, that was a, he was a a man of character. Uh, He was a man that was a quiet assassin, should I say, Mm -hmm. because he knew the languages. He spoke Mm -hmm. the languages of different nations, the different Mm -hmm. tribes. Mm -hmm. Um, He also um, brought his own son to justice, which I know was not an easy thing for him Mm -hmm. to do. So he that those were that that was the man Bass Reeves was. Mm-hmm. And he's buried in Oklahoma. You know, yeah. those you know, I think about those things when I watch Watchmen. Yeah. Cause it's like, man, that is so much Oklahoma history yeah. in this one episode that we a lot of us don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I look at when I think of of just the effects overall of what took place wow. in, in, in there. This is this is the greatest podcast I've ever been. I have the pleasure to be a part of. Uh, James, let me ruin it. No, <laughs> Put me in coach. I mean, to Joe Bess earlier point about like you took a was it race and ethnicity yeah. class. I've said this a lot in recent uh, months, but had I not been a film studies student. Mm-hmm. Had I and I really mean this, it'll get a laugh. But <laughs> had I not seen Nightmare on Elm Street as a five year old, sure. mm-hmm. I would not. It didn't scare me. That nothing about that show scared me. I don't understand. Me. I don't I don't either. This I don't age, either. and I still. I know like how that. you. Are. No, I know how you are. <laughs> no, I mean, literally the only two movies that have ever scared me were uh, Arachnophobia because spiders <laughs> and uh, and Candyman, which yeah, I found out many many years later that I think that movie was scaring me because it was really about racial violence and history. Right. And it's the subtext of that movie. Um, but no, it, none of those things scared me. I just wanted to write stories. Sure. And when I got to graduate school at OSU, I took a class called white and write in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And it was taught by uh, Dr. Carol Mason, who does incredible work. Uh, I, I learned the term white privilege from her. Mm-hmm. And this was would have been in 2008. Mm-hmm. And um, she does incredible work on um, re- reproductive justice. She sharpened my uh, ability to write, to write, <laughs> just to write. Curious. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> but she, that's where I learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre huh. in 2008. That's insane. That's right. 12 years ago. And I grew up where I told you I grew up. Yeah. 
And um, she assigned us a book that at the time I didn't read because when you're in grad school, sometimes it's like, hey, you're supposed to read five books this week. It's uh, like, that's great. I read three. You know? right. um, and, and how? I don't know. But she had assigned us a book called Reconstructing the Dreamland. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't get a chance to read it. And I kicked myself for it as I graduated a couple of years later. I was like, man, I'm a poser. <laughs> but then when I went back to graduate school for creative writing to work on a book project, I purposely sought out that book because I kept it. And I was like, I need to, I, it, was, it wasn't like I was never going to read it, you know. And so I read it this time with a poet, with Kuresh uh, Ali Lantana, Q. And uh, I remember him telling me that he believed that the state had dropped bombs on Greenwood. And I was like, oh, cute. (laughs) No, no, no. And then I started reading this book and I was like, oh, they dropped bombs on Greenwood. Like this is, this is, this is horrible, you know, Uh, and deputizing a mob Mm -hmm. to just come in and burn house after house after house as you remove people. So, you know, and, and again, had I not, purposely sought out to research media violence, which took me into film studies and then poli sci as a minor, and then into grad school to start working on that, um, what I thought was going to be an academic book, I wouldn't have encountered a lot of what I've encountered. I really wouldn't have. I, 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 and that is a shame. It's really a shame. So when I watched the first episode and saw The Dreamland, I was like, oh, someone else did their homework. I mean, it was just really that. that, And and in fact, the Dreamland plays a pivotal role in that story. Uh, Pivotal. So it was really hard to watch. As I was saying, I think before the podcast began, I I, um, started it on um, uh, Christmas Eve and uh, had taken my mom to dinner a couple of nights before for Christmas. So then I was going to have Christmas Day all to myself and my cat. <laughs> and I just binge watched the rest of it. You and Miriam. Miriam and I just hung out. And, um, but I have to tell you, the way Joe Beth described the, um, the, the, this abrupt edit, even before you get to Angela at mm. the beginning, it goes from the Tulsa Race Massacre to uh, present day where a masked oh, yeah. black police yeah. officer is stopping an unmasked white man in a truck. I mean, you literally go from those images of of bombs being dropped and and just insane brutality and mob violence and vigilanteism under the name of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, You go from that to this moment where you see a black officer, and it's such a jarring image. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the the white man in the truck pulls out a a Rorschach mask from the the graphic novel. Well, I'll just leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. I'm like, James! <laughs> well, actually, I don't want to quite leave it at that because I want to talk about that jarring part. I've talked to friends about it afterwards. I I have ever since Christmas Day now, Christmas Eve, that was that first episode, I have walked around just kind of looking around going like, who, who is part of that legacy of the white supremacists and the Klan who's the son or the grandson today yeah. who smiles on my face. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, that was what was jarring about sure. that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and then the, the Warshack mask, I've had some friends who were very upset at the show for, for using Warshack, who's mm-hmm. a pretty well-known character sure. in the graphic novel, for using him as a symbol of uh, vigilante in, in, regard, in the context of white supremacy. And I was like, come here, gather around. Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, w- one thing I learned in all that media violence, in fact, one of the major things I learned is this history, or this country has a history of uh, 
valorizing images mm-hmm. of vigilante justice. Mm-hmm. Of, I mean, I, and what I'm going to say is going to be very unpopular sure. to a lot of listeners. Uh, <laughs> forgive me ahead of time. We've done a few of those. <laughs> but, but, you know, what I learned in the research was it's not Mortal Kombat we got to be worried about because at least when you're playing Mortal Kombat, you actually see the violence inflicted on the body. No, what we've got to mm-hmm. be worried about is the fact that K through 12, there are no conflict resolution classes for our kiddos. And yet mm-hmm. they have the Avengers. And they have movie after movie after TV show telling her or him that this vigilante who operates outside of the law and outside of justice, or sorry, outside of law, is who will dispense justice. Mm -hmm. What is that teaching our kiddos? And then you look at all these mass shootings. Remember, Columbine was in 99. I couldn't have quite guessed that we would be in the era that we are, uh, where it's just like, you know, one week kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, th- I think that is in, is in those kids' heads who are committing those shootings, the idea that this mm-hmm. is how you get attention, this is how you resolve conflict. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think until we as a country confront the fact that we are promoting images of vigilante justice, i.e. Warshak, yeah. um, and I would r- remind you from the graphic novel, like, without spoiling it, like, Remember where he sends his documents at the end of that graphic novel. Yeah. Like, remember where he does. <laughs> it is not some far left <laughs> publication. Mm-hmm. No, I think that we have a history in this country of, of, of lynchings, of course. But remember, uh, when I was reading Reconstructing the Dreamland, one of the things that I didn't know until I read that book, but, you know, whether it was the Black Dispatch or what was the other major black paper? At oh, the time was it the Star, I think? I can't remember. The Tulsa Star. Is that right? I think so. Is that right? But in there, they had these these excerpts. Uh, in, in Dreamland, they had these excerpts from people writing back in the mm-hmm. teens, largely in the teens during uh, World War One, using the language of law in an appeal to the sheriffs, to the governors, mm-hmm. to the mayors, mm-hmm. saying... Actually, all we're asking is for you to enforce equal justice under the law. Sure. And they cited very specific law language to make their case. And no, because of vigilante justice. Right. And that's what makes Bass Reeves so fascinating. Is like, yeah. No, I will do justice under the law. Yeah. I'm not the vigilante in this moment. Right. And mm-hmm. I think until this country grapples with that, and even going back to Nightmare on Elm Street, um, that man, Freddie, mm-hmm. bad guy, totally bad. Sure. Uh, those parents vigilante style murder him mm-hmm. because the courts let them down. I'm doing air quotes for people who can't see on the podcast. <laughs> so they go out and burn this man alive in his boiler room. Mm-hmm. And the the you talk about historical trauma. And by the way, it was that film that taught me that Russ Craven was a philosopher, like he was not philosopher, a uh, philosophy professor. Mm-hmm. And he puts it in that film, and it took me many, many years later to fully understand what I was so in love with with those with the, with the few of those films that are really great. But it's about historical trauma. The parents don't tell their kids right. what they did. They don't tell them. And so they repress it. And then all these years later is when the kids grow up, guess what's haunting their nightmares? The memory of this historical trauma. Mm-hmm. In suburban Elm Street. Yeah. So, you know, like, <laughs> wow. like our art, and you go back to people like Du Bois and, and those debates that they were having in the 20s about how do we raise consciousness? How do we change hearts and minds? How do we tell our stories? And a lot of them were convinced that it wasn't through civic engagement and it wasn't through uh, politics, but it was through art. You know, this is around the time of the Harlem Renaissance and education, and education, and education. And I, th- and as we talk about even the Harlem Renaissance, and 
I think that's the the beautiful dynamic of of even diversity when you think about African American and the African American experience. Uh, because I didn't find out till college in my composition class that Langston Hughes was an atheist. I, I just learned it. <laughs> and one of my favorite people to follow in writing and to find out like that he was this atheist. I was concerned. <laughs> and then when you think about the historic trauma that our communities have faced, I know, and I'm probably paraphrasing for him, but a lot of them probably felt, you know, if there really is a God or a Jesus or a savior, sure. why would he put us through mm-hmm. this? That's right. um, so I, I get that. And just thinking about as, as you were talking that that continued historic trauma, it is PTSD. And I know mm-hmm. uh, I was telling you this summer when I went, mm-hmm. Joe Beth, JB, this summer, <laughs> when I went, I went to go hear uh, Dr. Joy DeGruve, and she oh, spoke yeah. about post-traumatic slave syndrome mm-hmm. disorder. And it's just like, wow, that makes so mm-hmm. much sense mm-hmm. as to why we are still in some of these spaces and our mindset just mm-hmm. cannot move because we have not... Uh, been dealt the ways of overcoming what has been done Mm -hmm. to us and and why we're here and um, went to study abroad in West Africa and we went through that door of no return in Dakar, Senegal and I'm telling you it's just the spirits are still there Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't if you've been you'll feel it but if you have any feeling in you you feel something because of that trauma that still lives in that slave house. So these are, and this is trauma again, that still carries us 400 years later as a people trying to get where we need to go while still being oppressed by the system, while still trying to educate ourselves um, and being one of the most educated people in our society but still being suppressed mm-hmm. at the same time with that education. Right. So it's so many different things, but it's definitely um, a lot of PTSD. Mm-hmm. I asked my, um, just building on that, I asked the middle schoolers a couple years ago, they had watched uh, two PBS documentaries on Latino American history and African American history. And because of time, we couldn't finish the, the African-American one, but we got right to the 1900s. And I was like, mm, how can I get the point across that needs to be gotten here? So it's like another hundred years here, right? And instead I was like, I have an idea. And I paused it and I found this uh, animated version that I think Orson Welles animate, uh, narrates of um, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Mm-hmm. And he's basically talking about, like, imagine you have been, you're, you know, the, you're one of these three people, you're down in this cave, you're chained down, you're staring at the wall, people, you're looking at the walls as if it's reality. And only later do you realize that someone's been projecting the truth to you. And now imagine you've been un, unchained and you go up and all of a sudden what you thought was the sun and the image is not that. It's actually this very blinding thing. Mm-hmm. And imagine now you have to re reassess the very nature of reality itself and now imagine having to go back down into the cave to tell the people when they laugh at you and think you're crazy and these sorts of things and um i'm watching this and you might think like for seventh and eighth graders it's way over their head 
uh-uh, because I asked them just one question when it was mm -hmm. done, literally just one. I said, so based on what you all just saw of the, you know, from 1619 to 1900s when it came to slavery, how long do you think it would take African-Americans as a people or really anybody to be able to uh, come into enlightenment and, and make peace with what has been done and to overcome that? And from the mouth of babes, they were like, I don't know, another 400 years. So, and, and, and that's one thing, but to Nikki's mm -hmm. point, you mentioned about the Tulsa race massacre only recently is it being taught. There is nothing LGBT in almost any of our textbooks. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, um, is it Bernard Reston? Baynard. Baynard Reston. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, helped organize the March on Washington. Gay. Mm -hmm. You know, James Baldwin. Gay. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest novelists ever. Um, I love James. <laughs> these are people that we are just, we're, we're hiding from mm -hmm. our children. Mm -hmm. Going back to the West Memphis Three, because if you were to, if you were to, if you teach them that Baldwin's gay, you're gay now, I guess, you know, um, yeah. or if you teach them about these ugly, horrific things we've mm -hmm. done in our past, I don't know what they think. I, I don't, I don't know why they're not doing, I mean, mm -hmm. I, shame. I don't know, but mm -hmm. it's going to be incumbent upon, you know, this millennial generation that is starting to move into positions of power right now. It's going to take us working with anybody and any of the other generations who gives a damn to uh, educate our keep educating ourselves, educating others. Like I didn't know about what's her name, Cla uh, Claudette. Claudette Colvin. Yeah, and I, as Claudette Colvin, right before Rose Park, didn't know anything about that. I knew about Mumbet, who had won her freedom as a slave in Massachusetts in the late 1780s. But as I was rereading that today, I did not realize she is the grandmother of W.E.B. Du Bois. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's so much more learning we yeah, as sure. the educated yeah. folk have to do. But then right. it's that Plato's allegory of the cave. We have to go back down into the cave. And and one of the things that Plato talks about in that moment is be ready because they're not going to want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will, so to just sort of touch on it, kind of maybe bring it back to the symposium, you know, as we talk about the planning as she does. and the breakout sessions and all the keynotes, I think, and, and to the point that we haven't, especially I think, you know, like it sounds like often in black communities or maybe in Hispanic communities, it's like you learn at least at home or in your community, your, the history of your culture, whereas like in our K through 12 public ed, the curriculum as much around, well, the stories of like Western European life um, and history. And, and even then not the fullest, like, you know, I learned about Andrew Jackson and I was like, wait, what did he do? <laughs> um, and like, you learn about him in school, but you don't learn everything right, about him. Right. Um, and, but something that I've been thinking about, you know, and the idea of like trying to provide content and education at the symposium, not sort of re-traumatizing people because it's it's one of those things like, yes, we need to educate people and we need to talk about this and tell these stories, but we don't want to just like, and I think especially from where I sit, like I don't want it to just be like a, a time of like all of these horrible things that have happened to these communities and not tell the stories of how prosperous Greenwood right. was right. Um, or, you know, that Booker T. Washington came to visit or that Martin Luther King Jr. came to visit Oklahoma City, um, not, you know, to, to not or or to tell the stories about the black towns in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And because that's the other piece of the education is not just telling the tragedy part. It's like, yes, we need to recognize that there were some really horrible injustices that happened. Also, right. <laughs> we need to make sure that we understand the fullness of 
the process, the resilience and the yep. prosperity of those communities so that we aren't just defining people by their trauma. Mm-hmm. We aren't just defining communities by our, the perceived lack, um, but to see the things that are happening in those communities that are outside of any like interference by sort of the system or the status quo, like finding healing opportunities for themselves um, because the status quo systems haven't been recognizing and, and incorporating that into the work that they do. So, and that's, you know, it's interesting to even, yeah, like learn um, about, you know, I know Dr. Hannibal Johnson has a lot of, a lot of literature and stories about all of the black towns in Oklahoma and like particular families. And, um, and I think that's a really important piece that we're really trying to make sure we are also talking about. And same thing with, you know, the Hispanic community. And right now, obviously um, the, the bigotry they're facing around immigration and um, and that have faced, I'm sure, for a few decades, like not just saying, you know, look at these horrible things that are happening right now, but what are the like really great things that have been happening in these communities and help tell those stories because that is part of the healing. It's not just like, yes, you kind of have to like reckon with the the bad stuff, but also see, you know, what is what are all the good things that are happening because outside of any interference of the sort of status quo mainstream culture, all that healing has been happening. It's mm-hmm. just because the mainstream is maybe waking up to it doesn't mean it's not been there. Yeah. So that's something that I know I'm trying to be cognizant of. And I, all of the partners that we're working with keep saying out loud. So I'm like, Hey, I'm glad, <laughs> glad we're on the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I think as we speak to that too, we have to realize and understand uh, because of, the trauma that has happened in a lot of communities, they don't speak about it. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, mm-hmm. the yeah. generations don't understand what mm-hmm. took place because our generations before, because it was so traumatic, they don't speak yeah. to it. Uh, therefore, again, is your lack of healing mm-hmm. in the process uh, of what took place. Mm-hmm. Okay, this has been remarkable. Thank you, James. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Jabeth. For being with us. Um, so as we do at the end of every podcast, I ask the, the guests to <laughs> to share some parting words. What? Did you ever point anyone? No, I want, him to, I want you to start over there. Oh. Don't start with me because I got to think about it. <laughs> I'm never prepared for this. James? Man, she just threw you under the bus. Just man. go nightmare on him. <laughs> so Nancy at the end. <laughs> and she saves the day. <laughs> um, but thinking about everything we've talked about or just any um, call to action that you want to leave uh, with our with our audience, share that, those parting words and say, go do good things. And I'm going to have each of you do this. You know, if I was going to do one, I would say my big message is that, you know, we just need to remember to always treat people with compassion and, you know, see people first. Don't see them for the color of their skin or that they have a mental illness or that they've experienced homelessness or that they've been justice involved. We're people first. So go do good things. Uh, So it could be very simple. I have one. I have one. Mine's very, very simple. Go read Watchmen and go do good things. There you go. Okay, go read the. Joe Beth wants you to read the graphic novel. Okay. I'll I'll do mine. Okay. Uh, while I was studying abroad in West Africa, uh, we uh, my major's broadcast journalism, so we did newspapers and everything. And there was this quote in there that I is now like my quote of life, and it's from uh, Sir Alfred Tennyson. It is, "I am a part of all that I have met." 
So now, with that being said, <laughs> go do good things. Well, that just set the standard. Oh boy, yeah, that was awesome. journal. <laughs> <laughs> What cursed monkey's paw? <laughs> did, I, <laughs> did I grab uh, uh, I would really encourage everybody to watch. There's an American Experience documentary on World War One, and then I believe there's a Hugh Straken documentary called The Great War. I would encourage everyone as we're moving out of the 100 year anniversary of World War One, to revisit that history because it's been pretty heavily on my mind. I knew next to nothing about it until I watched those two documentaries in the last couple years. And I feel like we're reliving that moment globally because you had the Austrian-Hungarian Empire that refused to allow for representation in their government of any of the different ethnicities and cultures, whether they were from the Czech Republic, what we now call the Czech Republic or wherever it is. These people were not allowed a seat at the table. And it led to one of, as we know, the famous like moment where this guy shoots, you know, this this uh, Ferdinand, who tragically, ironically, was one of the only reformers in the government. Mm -hmm. And I worry about that so much in our country and across the world. And when I hear people say, "Oh, it's just identity politics," I would ask them to go um, look at World War One and go do good things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank this you. is. Um, okay, we're done. Nice.